The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the RPGBot.News. I'm Randall James, and with me is Tyler Kamstra. Hi, everybody. And Ash Eli. Hey, guys. All right. Uh, Ash, what is happening? So today we're going to be talking about a uh, new system. Uh, it's sort of like a plug-in for 5e called uh, Simbaroom. Now, this is a point of contention because we don't exactly know what the proper way to pronounce it is. Uh, so you'll have to forgive us if we pronounce it wrong. Uh, our two running theories are Simbaroam or Simbaroom. Um, but we're going to go with Simbaroom. <laughs> so. yeah, we think Simbaroom wins because we went and we listened to the original announcement, which was not in English. And the syllables that we extracted were those. It, it was pretty close to Simbaroom. Simbaroom. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so you're going to have So for Swedish listeners out there, we're so sorry. Yeah, we we are really sorry. Actually, um, just everybody, we're sorry. That's yeah, a general yeah. statement. We're sorry. <laughs> Pretty much. That scene, that scene in uh, Home Alone Two. <laughs> we love you. No, okay. Anyway, so <laughs> Simbaroom, pretty cool, huh? Yeah, yeah. No, it's a it's a really cool system. So um, I believe uh, so. This system is based off of the original system that this company made. Uh, remind me of the is it Fantasy Flight or Free, Free League? Free League, Free League. Sorry, I apologize. Um, so Free League um, made Simbaroom or Simbaroom, whichever you prefer, and it was its own D twenty system. But and I read it when it first came out, and it was a very exciting system. My one complaint when it, uh, about it was it was. Um, it was a bit dense and complicated to sort of figure out. It had a sort of, uh, it had too many attributes and too many variables of success, which we talked about in a previous ex- episode. But uh, I am glad that they decided to do a conversion for 5e because it is a lot more user-friendly now. There's going to be a few things that we want to talk about uh, about Simbaroom. Uh, so it was originally published in Swedish, in Swedish, excuse me, in 2014, and it was translated into English in 2016. I don't know if you guys got a chance to look at the document. Yes. Did you? Absolutely. I do. I want to ask a history question just so everybody can kind of be grounded in the same thing. So in 2016, we were still playing fourth edition, right? No, 5e came out, I believe in 2015. Okay. All right. So 5e, 5e was fairly new. All right. Cool. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, re- I remember Simbrum coming out and being translated to English in 2016, and there was a lot of buzz about it in online discussion for a long time. Um, I never dug into it at the time, but I recognized the name, and it's just kind of been hanging around in the back. And like right around the time when I thought, I should look into Simbrum and see what's up, see if that's still cool. And hey, look, there's a 5e adaptation. How about that? 
And we really like those free league folks. They do a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah. Okay, so to be clear, I, I want to see if I have this right. So Simbaroom is the original uh, setting. It's it, it is a D20 game, but it is not D&D. Correct. This, this new thing is called Ruins of Simbaroom. Yes. And it is a 5e adaptation of the most important parts of Simbaroom. Correct. So it, it tries to translate the classes, mechanics, the overall feel, and the lore and setting. So Simbaroom has its own has its own lore. I, I don't want to get too much into the lore. I think it's better that for our purposes that we focuses on, focus on mechanics. But the lore is essentially that, um, you know, uh, it, is a, it is a dark fantasy. It is probably the most uh, like Dark Soulsian kind of fantasy that you could find for a tabletop. There, uh, aside from like Warhammer or something like that, or maybe Dark Souls. Anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, we don't talk about that. <laughs> not yet, but, at least not yeah. yet until they fix things. But uh, so essentially, the premise is uh, there is a wild, untamed forest that is kind of a living entity on its own, uh, and there is an eldritch sort of presence that lives under the forest and the fey folk like elves um goblins and trolls uh have a sort of distrust of the humans and the other people who inhabit the civilized areas and uh the conflict comes when uh humans are trying to tame this wilderness and the more they try to tame it the more nature sort of fights back and the more that this eldritch entity starts to corrupt things so corruption is a central pillar in the design mechanics of this system and the, i think it's really well done so as a person who really likes corruption in a lot of games uh i have tried uh to use corruption in several of my games before it always seems either really brutal or just kind of eh. like it's just flavor give us some examples like what's the system that had corruption prior and like why wasn't that quite working for you so uh one of the biggest examples that comes to mind it's not necessarily corruption but it is a it is like corruption adjacent is the madness system in 5e so uh in in 5e you have uh temporary insanity and permanent insanity and um temporary these are optional rules that we could bring in if we wanted to if it fits your world Exactly. Um, but it's never really made it explicitly clear how you would go about giving insanity, and that is something that probably needs to be cleared up because especially with some of these these effects, they can be brutal. Um, like for temporary insanity, I think there's one where you're just like paralyzed for a while. And so for permanent insanity, it was mostly just a flaw in your character. Like you got a new flaw. Um, we talked about character creation previously and how flaws are really important. So it would be essentially replace your previous flaw with this new one, which feels kind of bad. And some of them weren't all that interesting, or some of them would completely change a character, uh, a character's concept. And players don't really like that. It's like, well, I'm essentially playing a character that I didn't sign up to play at this point. And that's something that I've seen a lot with corruption systems. There's been some supplements that have used corruption. Um, I believe Matt Mercer actually made one for corruption, which was, it was all right. Um, I love Matt Mercer, (laughs) but this one again was, um, it was pretty harsh and it was really easy for it to spiral very fast. And it could like essentially take away your, your character. I think the closest that I came to really liking a madness or corruption system was Call of Cthulhu, uh, which has a very 
in-depth madness system. It's a little too complicated, and I don't want to get into it right now, but essentially it is uh, like varying degrees of like severity until eventually you you um, you basically lose control of your character, but there are ways to reduce your madness by spending time in an asylum or uh, holding on to uh, things that tie you to your sanity. Well, and, and so a similar game we've talked about. So One Ring Second Edition has this idea of, uh, it, it's called Shadow, right, Tyler? Yeah. And, and so... It, it's a little bit of a similar idea where there are things that you can do to reduce your shadow over time, um, but it it winds up having a uh, a similar mechanical effect, I would say. Uh, not that you're going to pick up flaws, but it is going to impact your character's effectiveness. Yeah. You know, how much shadow you're carrying. And another free league game. Yeah, and the, the, there are a lot of systems like that. Another one that comes to mind is the um, uh, beast mechanic in uh, Vampire, where um, or your humanity, I should say. So essentially, as you go down further in the humanity pool, you get closer and closer to the beast. Um, and the way that you prevent yourself... You have, uh, when you break one of your tenants uh, that you create at character creation... Um, you have to make a humanity role. And some of the things that can help you stay grounded are those connections that you come, like uh, a significant other, a place that means a lot to you, something that ties you to your humanity. Those kinds of systems I do really like. Um, And I think that they're not as unforgiving as some of the, at least the attempts at implementing such a system in 5e have typically been pretty hardcore or kind of meaningless. Okay, so that's an interesting coverage of kind of what you've seen for like corruption or madness and other systems. So ultimately, how did Simbaroom land it in 5e? So I think they found an interesting middle ground. So the thing about it that I think works really well is that since corruption is such a central mechanic to how the system works, everybody no matter what class or race they play, has to interact with it on some level. And so the, it is balanced a little bit more towards uh, interacting with that system and working within that system. It's a really elegant way of doing it. Um, and we'll talk a bit more about like how those specific classes interact with corruption, specifically when we're talking about spellcasters, because they uh, tend to deal with corruption the most. But essentially what the way it works is you have temporary corruption and you have permanent corruption but these aren't anything like temporary or permanent um insanity in 5e so essentially every character has a corruption threshold which is your proficiency bonus plus your charisma bonus mages double that but or no i'm sorry it's two times your proficiency bonus plus your charisma bonus and uh so you can get permanent corruption through a variety of means, either by attuning to specifically powerful magic items or casting really powerful spells. Um, it's not easy to get permanent corruption. Um, so you have to really kind of go out of your way and be really risky about it if you want to get permanent corruption, which I don't know why you would want to do that. <laughs> but, but like, so for instance, you shouldn't just grab a hold of the Palantir and like carry it around. That's a bad idea. Probably a bad <laughs> idea. Yeah, probably a bad idea. Um, and that can add a lot of interesting stuff. Like uh, if you're holding on to this magic artifact of doom you're it gives you a lot of power but at the cost of your soul and stuff like that so it, it i mean i wasn't it, using it anyway what was i gonna do with it <laughs> yeah exactly but so temporary corruption is a lot easier to get you can get it from certain monsters you can get it from just casting basic spells some abilities give you temporary corruption um and you can get rid of corruption every short and long rest equal to like your your uh proficiency bonus and then you can spend hit die 
uh, sacrifice a hit die to uh, do that again. So as many times as you want to. So it's easy. It's easy to gain, easy to get rid of. But you have to be careful because you can think of permanent insanity as sort of the floor. If your threshold is your max, the permanent insanity is your floor. It cannot. Your corruption cannot go below that. So let's say I have two permanent corruption. Even if I were to get rid of all my temporary corruption, I would still have two. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, so it's, it's a vessel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it's similar to Shadow Scars and One Ring, where it creates like a floor, and then your your effective like maximum and minimum shrinks as the permanent corruption eats it from the bottom. Yeah, and uh, before you get too scared, well, oh, what if I hit my corruption threshold or go over it? It's still that that's still not necessarily bad. I mean, it's bad, but it's not like game ending bad. Uh, essentially, once you go above your threshold for between a combination of temporary or permanent corruption, you have to make a d20 roll. If the d20 roll is less than or equal to the difference between your threshold, your current threshold, and how much you have over it, then you roll another d20 on a mark of corruption table which um, can vary, like, usually they uh, last for about 24 hours, and these are just, most of them are just kind of, like, aesthetic things. Like, you grow some horns and people are repulsed by you. Some of them will add temporary corruption. If you roll really bad on this table, you will get permanent corruption. So, like I said, it is hard to get permanent corruption, but getting it is really bad. Um, because there there are very few ways to get rid of it once you have it. To to be clear, when you say permanent corruption, do you mean permanent corruption is in raising the floor again? Yes. So my temporary corruption pushed me above the mark. I rolled, and my penalty was raising my permanent corruption. So even if I make the temporary go away, I might, you know, eventually my permanent corruption is going to accumulate to the point where every time I gain corruption, I have to roll on the table again and again and again. Yes. Um, so it, it it can spiral, um, but you but uh, uh, once your permanent corruption reaches your threshold, your character's done. That's it. It's, they've essentially died. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. When we say that's it, I thought you meant the good. That's it. Like, hey, you can't be corrupted anymore. No, but no, you, no, you can't be corrupted anymore. So because... it is still. It is still it is still hardcore. Like it still is part of that. Like this is a dangerous world where things are trying to kill you. Um, so it, I don't recommend, I still don't recommend it for people who, um, who want a more laid back thing. This is people who want like, this is want to create a world that is threatening and feels like you could die at any moment, but it doesn't feel unfair because you can see it coming from a lot of way. And in large part, corruption is kind of within your control. Uh, that's one of the things that uh, other corruption mechanics don't, at least in 5e don't really do very well it's like oh i i rolled a bad thing and you know now it's um now now I, my character just sucks now whereas this this it's a gradual build up and um you have to roll real bad twice in order or really go out of your way to start getting that permanent corruption cuz like if you only go one above your threshold Rolling a one on a d20 and then rolling another one or a two on another d20 is, uh, you're just unlucky at that point. <laughs> <laughs> That's that, that extremely low likelihood. I do want to say the math that you were describing a bit ago for how we actually calculate this started to feel a little bit like what I think Thacko might be like. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it, it gave me feelings. I'm not gonna lie, but that that seems pretty trackable. I think folks could probably yeah. handle that. You know, it it, it seems it seems like ah math, but it's really not that hard. Um, because unless you're really like blowing a bunch of uh, excuse me, uh, blowing a bunch of stuff, uh, it's you won't be rolling like big numbers. Okay. It's pretty much within the D20. So it's like uh, the difference will be pretty minor between your threshold and what you're currently at. Okay, so I, I think that makes sense. I feel like I have a good feeling for the corruption mechanic, and I know we'll dive a little bit further. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the setting. Sure. So it is a um, it is a low magic setting. Okay. Uh, there is only one class. There are some subclasses of the other uh, classes that can cast magic, but they tend to be like half or a third casters. But uh, there's really only one class that casts magic, and that's the mystic. I want to pause for a second. We've talked about this way, way back, but let's, you know, for maybe newer listeners, when we talk about a half caster, a third caster, what do we mean by that again? So a half caster is someone like a paladin or... Um, uh, I'm trying to think of what else. Ranger. Ranger, thank you. Uh, a third cast... So they they are like classes that can cast magic from the start, but that's not their whole shtick. Their, their shtick is more... They're a combination of martial and casting classes. Um, third casters tend to be like Arcane Trickster or um, Eldritch Knight, I believe, um, which are based off of your subclass. So uh, a half caster, I believe, can only go up to fifth level spells. And then third casters can go, remind me again how high they go. Uh, fourth level spells. Do they also go to fourth levels? Yeah. Um, they also get access to less spells. And, um, and, and so full casters can go all the way to ninth and they get the most spells. Fifth level cast, uh, uh, fifth casters um, get less than that. And third casters get less than that. Okay, awesome. And so kind of with that context of understanding, like our full casters, you know, think your classic wizard, think your uh, classic sorcerer, they get all the spells, they get lots of spells, and that's kind of, that's the shtick of the class. Yeah. Go to a half, we cut, you know, we cut the max level and the available spells down, go to a third, cut it even more. And so with that context, you were saying a second ago that you had a third level caster. Yeah. So there are third level, uh, there there are uh, third casters, there are like half casters, uh, um, but the only full caster is the mystic. But the way that Simbaroom kind of approaches approaches uh, classes, which I don't want to, uh, we'll save this for later. But uh, it's sort of like you have archetypes that are then split into actual classes rather than a class that has subclasses. But um, so the defining conflict of the setting, like I said before, is this this constant conflict between civilization and the untamed wild. The deeper you go into the forest, the more old primeval and um, uh, untamed it is. And the, basically the premise of it is, is that you, you're going to be spending most of your time in town and going into expeditions into this dense forest. And it's sort of like, what if the forest was like exploring the underdark. It's uh, like there there are parts of the forest that are really alien and weird and scary, um, and it's it's a very threatening sort of aesthetic. So, what motivates the average party to go into the forest? Like, why are we exploring? It's about uh, sort of knowledge gathering, resource gathering, that kind of stuff. There's a lot of money to be made. There's a lot of power to be gained from going into the forest and uncovering the dark secrets that lie within 
Um, so I'm mostly picking mushrooms. Is that the answer? <laughs> yes. If you just want to go out to the forest and pick mushrooms, you can do that. Uh, you probably won't make much money, but you can do that too. Yeah, that's, I mean, really good mushrooms. Yeah. Like the red ones with the white dots. So it sounds like this is very much like a murder hobo sort of thing where like, okay, I guess not hobo, but like I, you live in a city, you leave the city to go crawl a dungeon yeah. and then come back with loot. So it's like that, that dungeon based economy. Yeah, it is very much like a dungeon a crawl sort of thing. But um I have I'm I uh I haven't dug too deep into the setting. Um cuz what I wanted to try to do when I was playtesting this was I wanted to see if I could adapt this system to other settings and if it would still work. And uh I can largely say that yeah. Uh, I think it, it translates pretty well to any sort of setting. You can make it setting agnostic. That's great. So, so it, the, if you want to use the rule set in a setting agnostic way, like you, you want kind of, I don't want to say generic, but like you want races, classes, et cetera, that aren't super strictly tied to the setting. Like you want those things to make sense in other settings. So looking at characters, like we're, we're used to D and D where there's, clerics bards wizards etc and all there's all the different kinds of casters and then simbrum has just the mystic um so like the the collection of character options available like are they robust enough that you could take those to another setting and they would still make sense Absolutely. I think that um, the, uh, the you might have to change a few things about just like some of the verbiage and the lore and stuff like that, but you can absolutely tweak some things to make it work in other settings. Um, and like I said, the the classes in Simbaroom are very broad. Uh, the subclasses in and of themselves are kind of like full classes. Um, so for instance, the mystic, so each class has its own approach, right? So um, that's what they call subclasses in Simbaroom is approaches. The base classes are, let me take a look here. We can just list a couple favorites. Yeah, um, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> ah, there's so many. Okay, here we go. Uh, I mean, there's just so many pages. Okay, here we go. Perfect. So the base classes are Captain, uh, Hunter, Mystic, uh, Scoundrel, and Warrior. So, and it's kind of, um, so those are very broad archetypes, but each one has several, not just like three, uh, several different approaches. For instance, the captain has uh, something called a merchant master, uh, or it has an officer, an outlaw, uh, a poet warrior, all different kinds of stuff. The ones that ha- the one that has the most, though, is, again, mystic because mystic is the only caster so it's a it's uh trying to incorporate a lot of different play styles for full casters so you have the artifact crafter the self-taught uh sorcerer wizard staff mage um essentially it's trying to appeal to each of those archetypes so like you have the mystic version of a druid. You have the mystic version of a cleric. You have the mystic version of a wizard and a sorcerer. You also have a mystic version of like a monk wizard. Um, and then you have one that's analogous to a bard and stuff like that. Uh, Scoundrel is kind of incorporates uh, obviously rogue stuff. So they have, you know, the rogue caster. Um, they have 
solid rogues, thieves, assassins, that kind of stuff. Hunters are kind of a mishmash of both ranger and fighter. Uh, Captain, I would say, is actually closest to the warlord in 4th edition because it's all about bolstering your allies and giving them extra attacks and stuff like that. Um, And then warrior is a combination of fighter, paladin, and barbarian um so each of those subclasses like i said before will have the templar is like closest to a paladin the tattoo warrior is closest to like a bear barbarian and stuff like that it's a lot of versatility does or do any of these kind of come close to the idea of the druid because i can imagine that actually being really important in this world given the central conflict. Yeah, no. So like I said, uh, under the mystic class, there is one that is uh, analogous to Druid, and that is the Witch. Um, And in the Witch, they have also three different paths that they can take. So when I say these subclasses are robust, I mean, they're pretty robust. Like some of them change how the class plays. And uh, like for mystic, you're told what is your spellcasting ability modifier? How does your uh, how does your class view corruption, and how does it deal with corruption? Uh, and like what their titles in their circle uh, uh, is, and like w- what their place in the world is. Um, and so like witches have green paths, which are probably the most analogous to druid like you can interact with nature you can afford uh, uh you can take on wild shapes stuff like that the red path which is kind of like a combination between druid and uh kind of like a paladin and then the white path which is like a druid crossed with a uh, cleric a bunch of different ways that you can play your characters and a lot of flexibility in play styles and how you want to present the world that you're trying to present so I feel like we've talked a little bit about like races and classes. What about the other parts of character creation? Like, do we get to bring like backgrounds? Are there feats? Do, do the feats come in trees? Yes. So uh, there are there are different backgrounds. Um, they they work kind of like five E backgrounds. Uh, some of them actually come with their own like feature abilities because um, there's not many features for each of the classes. I, I mean races. So some of those you have to take from backgrounds. Now. Feats are uh, also pretty robust in Zimbaroom. Um, it is kind of similar to Pathfinder, and there's three different types of feats. There are boons, which anyone can take. They increase uh, one of your stats by plus one. Um, there's also burdens, which are optional feats that you can take that give your character some sort of disadvantage, but they also increase your, your uh, attributes by more. So if you wanted to make a stronger character that had a drawback, you can do that, which is something that I really like. Like you can give your character an addiction that they have to deal with. Then there's uh, racial feats and class feats, which are pretty self-explanatory. But yeah, there's a lot of ways that you can build your character, a lot of ways that you you can sort of make them unique and customize them. So do races work basically the same way as they do in 5e? So this is one thing that I think... I have a bit of a gripe with with Simbroom. Um, so, uh, whereas most, where it seems like D and D is like trying to get away from the whole races and ancestry determine like your 
your skill pool. Like every race is the same sort of thing. Like it's moving away from that. Sim Room's like, oh, what if we do the opposite of that? <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's lean hard into all races. Are uh, uh, each race is exactly this? So they still have the attribute bonus thing. The other thing that they do, so you, they do give you the option. You can either take your your hit die is either determined by your race or by your class. So it kind of is up to you. Like if you want to be like, well, goblin makes sense that they would have less health than a troll, let's say, or you're like, I don't really want to lean into that. That's kind of problematic. Let's just do classes. Just keep in mind, though, that the system heavily favors you taking your hit die from race because you can make an incredibly broken character with um, if you do hit die by uh, class because goblins are just objectively the best. <laughs> okay, but optimization-wise, like, wouldn't you always just take the larger? Like, if I want to take a class that has a lower hit die than my race, I take the race hit die and vice versa. So- so it, the player doesn't choose. It is decided at the beginning. Like we're going by race hit die, not class hit die. I um, see. So it's a, that is something that needs to be discussed at session zero. Okay, gotcha. Um, but uh, the other thing that I really don't like about the races is there are a lot of races that are what are called pariah races. Uh, that includes goblins, ogres, and trolls and sometimes elves uh but essentially if you're one of these pariah races you have a feature called pariah race which is you have disadvantage on all charisma checks with people that are not of your race and i don't like that i think that that uh again leans into problematic territory if that's something that you you like then cool i personally didn't like it so i think that's one of the things you can sometimes get away with when you're writing a setting for, or sorry, when you're writing a rule set for a single setting, where you can say yeah. like within our single setting system, like this is a presiding conflict. These people are currently encountering these prejudices within the setting. But yeah, if you, if you took this rule set outside of the Symbarum setting, then yeah, you strongly consider removing those prejudices. Yeah, and I think like if you're go- if you're going to be a Simbarum purist and only play it in the setting, then I think it's fine for what it is. Um, but if you want to adapt this to your own campaign, I yeah, like Tyler said, I'd get rid of it. So talk to me a bit about magic. Like you, ah uh, yes. So there is the mystic, which is the caster class, correct? And then the wizard is a subcategory of the mystic, and I am deeply and personally offended that wizards are considered a sub anything of anything else because (laughs) wizards are my pure perfect beautiful babies and i love them very much well like i said uh the different subclasses are classes in and of themselves it's not like you have less features like uh each of the subclasses get more features um than like base 5e i believe they all but they all get them at the same level so it's like i believe there's one at third sixth eighth tenth uh, 14th and 19th, I, I have to double check, but it's something like that. Like you get a lot and each cl- each subclass plays differently. So I can't speak to wizard. I didn't, I haven't played it, but uh, my friend Colby, who people may have met before from my uh, old podcast, uh, was playing a sorcerer. And sorcerers are interesting because their whole shtick is that they deal, they try to draw power from corruption. 
um, the more corrupted they are, the uh, the more powerful they can get. It's a very high risk, high reward sort of thing. So you can do what's called cast from corruption, where um, you you can cast levels of um, spells essentially without taking corruption equal to lower than your. Um, you, sorry, you can cast a number of spells equal to your total amount of corruption for free, essentially. The thing, so the thing about casters is you don't have spell slots. You can cast as many spells as you want. Your only limiting factor is corruption, and it can get pretty brutal um, if you're not careful. So essentially, you have a list of spells, and each subclass draws from a different list. So there's uh, the troll singer list, there's the sorcerer list, there's the witch list, and there's the wizard list. Oh, and the theurge list, which is the cleric. Um, And each each class uh, approaches corruption differently. So like, for instance, there's uh, the symbolist, which has weaker spells, but can uh, is harder for them to gain corruption because essentially they cast spells from these little totems that they have. And then you have self-taught, which is, oops, I'm going to access all the spell lists, but my corruption levels are like doubled. <laughs> so, oh. so yeah, it's uh, it can be a lot of fun. Um, but sorcerer with like meta magic or something, or with uh, wild oh, magic. What? Yes. Exactly. Well, these sorcerers don't have meta magic feats, but um, essentially, the way ca- uh, casting spells works is uh, you gain amount of corruption based on it's a d4 plus the spell level of whatever you're casting. That's how much temporary corruption you get per spell cast, and that can that can spiral really quick. Uh, but each caster gets a set number at certain levels of favored spells that they can cast, which is, um, you don't get a lot. And some of them can't be favored. Like, most damaging spells can't be favored. But uh, essentially, you can cast those, and it will only give you temporary corruption equal to the spell level. Cantrips don't give you any corruption. The other, thing, the other way that this sort of interacts, again, with the corruption is, so for instance, Colby was playing a sorcerer who took the feat demonologist, which allows them to add a spell to their list called summon demon. And it's a very good spell. You can summon different varieties of demons and there are different consequences. So they went went for broke. They summoned what's called a guardian demon, which is a CR eight monster. Very good, but it comes at the cost of four permanent corruption. (laughs) Oh, it's permanent. Oh, Permanent wow. corruption. Yeah. So it's like <laughs> I can go for broke if I want to, but I'm never going down from this. So essentially they at the start of the game, they their floor is nine. It cannot go below nine. Um, and that that can get really rough, not only just because of, you know, you risk losing your character, but also certain beasts in the bestiary interact with your corruption levels. So for instance, I was throwing this monster at my party, which was like a spirit that uh, inhabits a body. Um, it's kind of like a ghost and like the uh, Eidolon uh, totem in like uh, a Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes. It possessed a body, and when that body died, it could it could leave the body and try to possess someone else. And the possession roll, the DC for it was base was ten plus that person's permanent plus that person's current corruption level. 
So, yeah. <laughs> so not only getting high in corruption can um, can bring you closer to the brink, it can also make certain saves more difficult for you. So like I said, everything feeds back into this one system. So it sounds like they did a really good job building the entire system around that corruption mechanic rather than having it be just like, here's something we tacked on at the end because there had to be corruption. Yeah. And that's that's what I uh, I appreciate about it is like it seemed like they started from, OK, we have this corruption system. Let's build out from here. Um, and there are certain there are certain classes that can help with that. Like there's certain classes that allow you to ignore corruption uh, uh, for like uh, till your next short rest or there's ones that allow you to reroll. Uh, or uh, temporary corruption removal, stuff like that, or give you advantage on the corruption save. And it's sort of like every, but every class has something that they bring to the party, not in terms of just combat, but in terms of out-of-combat stuff to help survive in the wilderness. Because short, So there are three different rests, short rest, long rest, and extended rest. Um, short rests are basically what they are in 5e. Long rests are kind of like the middle way point between... Uh, long rest, uh, uh, short rest and long rest and 5e, you, you get some features back. You still can't heal to full. You still have to spend hit die. Uh, you can only heal to full when you're in an extended rest, which you can only take in a safe place like a town or something, and you have to do nothing for about 24 hours. Okay. Um, so hit die become incredibly valuable in the system because they not only are your health, they're also the ability to remove corruption and uh, so there are some classes that help you restore those hit die, which is incredibly useful and valuable for a team to have. So I, I think that makes really good sense. I guess I, I want to pose a question. So given everything that we've talked about, I'm a person who's playing 5e, enjoys 5e. I'm hearing about Simbaroom, and I think it sounds interesting. What are the things that would motivate me to give Ruins of Simbaroom a try? So if you're trying to build a world that is in a crappy place, let's say, uh, where it, you're trying to create a world that feels very threatening, or like I said before, trying to go for a Dark Souls vibe because, you know, the Dark Souls system we got was bad, um, <laughs> this is a good starting point. For me, so the, the, the setting that I adapted it to, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I have a setting that is near and dear to my heart, is called Mindenheim, and it is essentially a world that the sun died and is currently of enduring a post-apocalypse. Everything's cold. There are these monsters that uh, try to extinguish the last vestiges of humanity. So it is very much a, a very threatening environment that is difficult to survive in, and you have to work hard for every inch that you make. And that system, the system works great for that i have tried to find a system that worked for it and i've tried to homebrew a bunch of things but after playing this i was like this is perfect this is exactly what i wanted it to be and so if you're trying to go for a, uh, a set like this is not a setting that i would recommend for people who are who just want to have a happy fun time and just like casual that's not what this is this is definitely like we're going to work for we're going to work and earn every inch that we can and we might play with some dark forces and some power along the way uh but it, if it, we achieve our goals and we survive at the end of it it will be worth it yeah, it's like are you looking forward to suffering from the consequences of your own actions yeah <laughs> are you prepared to die i mean yeah yeah, yeah okay i'm sold on the concept yeah it's a really fun concept so ash tell us uh 
Runes of Simbarum just came out. Yeah. What uh, source materials are available currently? So currently they have a player's manual um, where you can get most of the new mechanics and um, systems and classes and all of that stuff and the feats and the backgrounds. It's like it has everything that you would want. Um, and then you have the DMG, which um, uh, it, it it helps you run a, run a game of Simbroom in the setting. Um, I would say if you have the DMG for 5e and you want to run it in your own setting, um, the DMG isn't necessary, but it might be helpful to help you get some ideas because it goes into more detail about the setting and some secrets that players wouldn't know. And then they have a bestiary, which is a very good bestiary. Uh, there are a lot of really creative monsters in Simbarum that uh, are just really cool. Like there's my one of my favorites is there's this thing called a Colossi. It's essentially a large creature um it's like uh four-legged and it looks like a giant beefy elk i don't know how else to describe <laughs> it you'll see okay. the art in this in these books are incredible and i would recommend getting them just for the art alone it's beautiful but um they are essentially they were these colossi were witches who uh there's a faction of witches in Simbroom who through a witch ritual turned these voluntary witches into their giant mounts and it is a uh, it is really cool this is the the bestiary goes really out there it's got some of the most creative monsters i've ever seen for a, a supplement for dnd it's i highly recommend it well and, and as you pointed out the fact that some of the monsters interact with corruption yeah. you're just not going to get that from the, the standard 5e monster or any of the other books yeah um and yeah so if you really want to play with that corruption mechanic you definitely need to get the beast here because there's a lot of monsters that interact directly with that also little little uh uh thing for you guys at the end they have an optional race in the bestiary which is a duck person race that was made <laughs> as an april fool's joke but they said this is an april fool's joke but you can feel free to use this if you want to <laughs> yeah it's like we're not gonna stop you <laughs> Yeah, I love that they did that. Untitled Duck Race. It has a name. I forget what it is. Um, I believe so. You can check their website. Um, they should have all of the material there. Um, like I said, it's a really amazing system, well worth the money. Um, and uh the starter kit um believe comes with all three of that. And um, so if you just want to get started right away, that would be the way to go. Awesome. And we will have a link in the show notes. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcast and rate us on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. It's a quick, free way to support the podcast and helps us to reach new listeners. You can find links in the show notes. You'll find affiliate links for sourcebooks and other materials linked in the show notes, as well as on rpgbot.net. Following these links helps us to make this show happen every week. Uh, <laughs> we started this up and we started talking about the, uh, the, law, the deep dark forests. <laughs> and uh, the song Lost in the Woods from Frozen 2 has been popping in and out of my head the entire time. <laughs> oh, no. That's, so, that's such a, a tonal whiplash there. Yeah. <laughs> Lost in the woods. <laughs>